0: Good to see you all here today. Uh, If you're visiting with us, especially glad to have you. Uh, Would love to get to meet you after the service if you have time to come up, introduce yourself, and hear how God has led you to Solid Rock. Answer any questions you have. Uh, But just super grateful to be a part of a church where God is working so powerfully. Um, We um, we we know God is working by faith uh, in ways that we can't see behind the scenes, below the surface, in the depths of who we are. Uh, But it's also exciting when we get to see God's tangible work happening and. Um, today, we've had four baptisms, uh, two in the first service, two in the second service. Last week, we had baptisms. we got a couple more coming up. Uh, to date, I think we've got, had twice as many baptisms already than we had all last year. And so you can just see uh, the tangible hand of God moving in our church and in the lives of our people, um, both young and old. And so it's so exciting to be a part of that. Um, if you're visiting with us again, love to, love to answer questions about the church. If you're looking for a church home, um, love for you to consider making Solid Rock your church home. Uh, We're going to be in Exodus uh, chapter 3 in just a moment. Uh, Second book in your Bible is Exodus. We'll be in chapter 3. A couple things I want to just share on the front end. One, um, as I've I've shared before, when I first became a Christian, um, I had a lot of people telling me, you need to read the Bible. And so as a young teenager, I would try to read the Bible. I would start in Genesis and try to read through, and I would get lost and confused. And, and, and to be honest with you, most of the Old Testament was somewhat foreign to me. I struggled to see what these stories had to do with my life. Now, the New Testament, um, I, could, I could more clearly understand. So for like the first 10 years of my Christian journey, I would gravitate towards the New Testament. If I was de- reading the Bible devotionally or in my personal time, I would read the New Testament. And the problems that I was having, one, I was opening the Bible, looking for the wrong characters. I was looking for me and didn't realize the Bible was actually about somebody else, about God himself. But number two, I didn't realize this amazing story that God is telling through the Old Testament and how all the little stories about the different characters, Noah and Jonah and Abraham, and as we'll see today, Moses, are all really small parts of this bigger story being told. And so what we're doing in this sermon series entitled The People of God is we're walking through the Old Testament together, looking at these individual characters, most of whom we've heard about, guys like Abraham and Adam and Noah and Moses. And we're looking at, what, at how these life stories are actually telling one bigger story and what they have to do even with our own stories. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at Moses. And so the big story so far, um, just a few weeks ago, we were looking at Abraham God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. Uh, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your family. And you guys are going to become a huge nation. And uh, through uh, your descendants, I'm going to bless all other nations. And so then from Genesis 12 forward, the Bible's tracking that story, that promise being fulfilled. So Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. We looked at Joseph last week. Uh, But we saw through Joseph's story how God's sovereign hand over Joseph used what was intended as evil against him for the good of all people. And how at the end of Joseph's life, his brothers came to him and said, you know, Joseph, forgive us for selling you out. Forgive us for all the evil we've done to you. And Joseph said, hey, you don't owe anything to me. What you've intended... As evil against me, God has intended it for good. And so through Joseph's life, we saw that that Joseph's life really wasn't his and that his story wasn't his because he was looking at the big picture of what God was doing. Well, as God's plan unfolded, uh, this family of Abraham hasn't become a huge nation yet. Uh, Matter of fact, they're just a little over 70 people there in Egypt. And so they settle there and they begin to multiply and grow. And one generation uh, gives way to the next generation. And then when we get to the book of Exodus, they're still there, we read that Pharaoh um, has passed away and a new Pharaoh has taken charge who knows not Joseph. Now remember, Joseph had favor with Pharaoh, right? Joseph uh, had earned Pharaoh's favor and, and Pharaoh allowed Joseph to move his whole family to Egypt. But now we've got a guy in charge who doesn't know Joseph. And so he's looking at Joseph's family and, and he sees that they're growing bigger and bigger and Pharaoh starts to get a little worried. He says to himself, you know what? If I let this go on, they're gonna become this huge nation. So he's seeing God's plan unfold. And so I'm gonna suppress them with slavery. And so he makes them all slaves. Well, the problem is this doesn't keep God's people from growing, does it? Matter of fact, in the midst of malnutrition, harsh treatment, lack of medical care, you know, lack of sanitary living, they continue to grow. And so God's promise to Abraham that your family will become this great nation, it's happening, even in slavery. And so Pharaoh issues an edict. I'll put a stop to this. He says, every son born... To this family, this people group, will be put to death. And this leads us to Moses. If you know Moses' story, he's born in the midst of this. Matter of fact, his mom, wanting to preserve his life and not put him to death, uh, puts him in a basket out in the river, kind of caught in the brush on the side, hoping somebody will rescue baby Moses. And this is where Pharaoh's daughter comes. She's there with the servants. They hear a baby crying. They look, and there is this Hebrew baby there in the basket, and she says, "You know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this one into my own household and raise him." Now, this is the cool part of God's story, where you can see like His providential hand working things out, because she realizes, "You know what? We need somebody to nurse this baby." So she tells her servants, "Hey, go find a Hebrew mom uh, who can nurse this baby until he gets old enough to eat on his own." And so she goes in amongst the slaves, and who does who does she pick to come nurse Moses? His mom. Right, so right. only God can do stuff like that, right? And so not only is Moses' life preserved for a greater purpose, God allows and orchestrates it in such a way where Moses' mom gets to nurse him there as an infant. And Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household, becomes a young man. One day he's out um, walking among his fellow Hebrews and he sees an Egyptian being really harsh with one of his family members. And so he reacts, as many of you would do. And he intervenes in the situation and he gets a little out of control and he ends up killing this Egyptian. And now he's a little bit nervous. Now what is he gonna do? So what he ends up doing is burying the Egyptian and ultimately fleeing for his life. Because he realizes if Pharaoh learns what, hap- what happened here. Not only will he kick me out of his household, he'll put me to death. And so then Moses heads out into the desert. Well, at a watering hole, Um, again, as God would orchestrate it, Moses runs into uh, these young ladies, and they're the daughters of the Midian priest, Jethro. And he's really kind to them. And so they report back to dad, hey, we met this guy down at the watering hole. He was just really kind to us. And Jethro said, well, bring him into the household. Let's feed him. Let's take care of him. And they invite Moses into the household. And as God's plan unfolds, uh, one of Jethro's daughters marries Moses. So here's Moses out in the desert. He's kind of a, a fugitive, and he ends up marrying one of Jethro's daughters, and he goes to work on the family farm, just tending sheep. 40 years goes by, and then we get to Exodus chapter 3. Moses out there just tending the sheep, minding his own business, and God begins to speak to him. In chapter 3 of Exodus, we read, starting in verse 1, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And so this is the story in the Bible that we oftentimes refer to as the burning bush. The problem is the way we typically depict this story, at least in like the, the, the children's illustrated Bible, is you got Moses with his shoes kicked off because God told him, you're standing on holy ground, take your sandals off. And he's basically standing in the picture next to a campfire. However, that's not at all what's happening here. Right? We've got an angel of the Lord in the midst of the fire right, about to speak to Moses. So this is less about a burning bush and more about the glory of the Lord right, revealing himself to Moses here. Now, as God works in the Old Testament, he oftentimes will speak through angelic beings. Right? That's why an angel will appear to somebody, then all of a sudden God's talking. Right? And so that's what's happening here. As God speaks through this angelic being, to Moses. Now keep in mind, the people of Israel, the Hebrews, the descendants of Abraham have been in slavery, right? Not only that, uh, Pharaoh has issued the edict that all the boys had to be put to death. So, so their suffering is really harsh. Meanwhile, Moses is out in the desert taking it easy with the sheep. So that's what's going on back in Egypt. So in chapter three, verse seven, God speaks through the angel to Moses. Verse seven, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. And he says to Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, we're gonna walk through the things that God said here. And he's speaking about a people who have been in slavery and bondage, not just for a few years, but for over 400 years. And right, these are the descendants of Abraham. They had passed on this promise to their children. Listen, the God of of Abraham, he's promised us. He's gonna bless us. He's gonna make us into this great nation. And and they looked around at their captives, their captors and said, where is this it? Is this what God was talking about? This doesn't feel like blessing, doesn't look like blessing. This is not what I have in mind when I think about blessing people. This looks like slavery. This looks like oppression. This looks like suffering. And generation after generation had cried out to the Lord, go God, please rescue us from this bondage. And now God is responding here in Exodus 3. And listen to what he says first. First, he says this, I have surely Seen the affliction of my people. And what God is saying is that not one thing has happened to my people that I have not seen. Like nothing happens in your life that is beyond the sight of God, right? Sometimes we pray as though God can't see what's going on though, don't we? Like we give God, here's what's going on. I don't know if you can tell or not, but this is not fun. This is hard. This is not what I want. And so we tell God, right? I don't know if you see this or not, but there's a big situation going on down here and I need your help. And God responds, listen, my people, I see everything that you're going through. But that's not all that God said. Not only does he see their affliction, he also says what? And I have heard their cry. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation or a struggle in your life where you just felt like God wasn't hearing you. Like maybe your prayers were hitting the ceiling and you were just praying, but nobody was listening. I'm sure the Israelites felt that way, day after day, year after year, 100 years after 100 years, feeling like maybe God just can't hear us. You ever felt that way? What God wants his people to understand is, listen, I hear every cry. I hear every word of it. The problem isn't that I don't hear you. You know what's typically going on when we feel that way? God is not doing what we're asking him to do, Right? And so therefore, oh God must not be able to hear me right now. My prayers must be hitting the ceiling and come back cuz if he could hear me, he would do this. If he could hear me, he would work this out the way I'm asking him to work this out. So maybe God can't hear me. And God is saying to his people, "I hear every last cry for help." Right? My ears are never beyond the ability to hear your prayers. And then what he says is remarkable he says to Moses, listen, I actually know their sufferings. Now this word know is not just the idea of like having knowledge of it. It's not God's not saying, hey, I know a lot about what's been happening. I know how many years they've been there. I know how many people have died at the hands of Pharaoh. I know about all the babies. This word know, to know, is the same word used in Genesis 4-1 that describes Adam knew Eve and she conceived. This is the idea of intimately knowing somebody, knowing something, right? That connection between two beings. It's the idea in 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul talks about the church this way. He says, listen, church, this is what it should look like. When one of you rejoices, we should all rejoice. But when one of you suffers, we should all suffer with them. Right, this idea that I know, I don't just know about what you're going through, I know it. So what God is saying is, listen, I I know the sufferings. I know the pain level. I know what you've been through. I know what you're feeling. I feel it too. Which then brings us to a dilemma, doesn't it? If God sees everything that has happened and God has heard every prayer and he even knows just how bad things are, then why hasn't he acted? Why hasn't he changed the circumstances? Have you ever wondered that? Maybe about your own life? Why am I here, God? If you see, if you hear, if you know, why aren't you acting? And so that leaves us with just a few options, doesn't it? Right? Like either A, God is a merciless God. He doesn't care. He sees it. He knows it. Meh. Just doesn't care. Or... He does care, but he's not all powerful. So he sees what you're going through, and he just wishes he could figure out how to fix it, but he can't. Right? He's, he's hoping somebody like Moses will come along and help him fix what's going on. Or, so either God is merciless or he's powerless, or he's actually good and all powerful, but at the same time, he's all knowing. He can see the end before the beginning. He actually knows what is best for you. Not just what's good for you, but what is best. So we saw that last week with Joseph's story where Joseph says, hey, what was intended for evil, God intended it for what? For good. We need to understand that when God calls something good, his standard of good is way better than our standard of good. That's the word he uses to describe creation before the fall. When At the end of each day of, of creation, he says, this is good. Meaning what? It's right. It's perfect. It's complete. And at the end of creating, he says what? It's very good. Right? And so when God takes what is intended for evil in our lives and turns it into good, it's not just meh good. Right? It's the greatest good. Right? There's not a greater good. Right? So it wasn't that God just stepped into Joseph's lives like, well, you know what? Let's make lemonade out of all these lemons. Let's just take a bad situation and make it less bad. No, what, what is being spoken about there is God saying, you know what? I'm going to do something better in your life than had this never happened, the greater good. And so this is the God who is now speaking to Moses, who says, I see what you're going through. I hear every cry of mercy for mercy, and I know your afflictions. And then God responds, in verse eight, he says what? I have come down to deliver them. Now, this is the news that the nation of Israel had been waiting to hear for over 400 years, isn't it? Finally, you're gonna, you're gonna rescue us. But I wanna break this into two parts because we, if we're not careful, we'll miss it. The first part of this is God saying what? I'm coming down. I'm gonna give you my presence. I'm gonna give you my nearness. I'm gonna come near to you. Even before I deliver you and I rescue you, I am giving you my presence. One of the problems we have in modern day Christianity is we have too far small view of who God is. Okay, that's one of our problems, right? We would, we would rather him be like our, one of our buddies, right? But, but we fail to see the God of the Bible of infinite worth, infinite value. Did you know, let me tell you something that's true. God is worthy to be worshiped by every person in this room, even if he doesn't act. Okay. Now, if that doesn't align with your theology, you have too small a view of God. That's how magnificent he is. He's worthy to be worshiped whether he acts or not. Right. And so God's greatest gift to you is not healing you from cancer. It's not putting your marriage back together. Those are all great things. God's greatest gift to you is himself. That's the thing of highest value in the universe. And God says, listen, I'm gonna offer myself to you. And listen, there are some seasons in life where that's all God gives us. And it's enough. This is what the apostle Paul is writing about where he's talking about his thorn in the flesh. He's like, man, I had this, this thorn in my flesh, this messenger from Satan. I prayed to God three times, get that junk out of here. And what was God's response to, to, to Paul? My grace is sufficient to eat for you. For right now, Paul, my grace will be enough. I hear your cry. I see what you're going through. I know how bad it feels, Paul. I know that it's a torment. But for right now, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, we don't know when God removed that thorn from Paul's flesh, we know it at least happened at his death. If it happened between them, we don't know. But as long as that thorn was in the flesh, whatever that was that was tormenting Paul, we do know this, that the, the presence of Jesus sustained him and was enough. And so, so, right? So even before God delivers these people from bondage and slavery, God is still good, right? He's still providing his presence. And in his sovereign knowledge, he looks ahead and rather than responding to the moment and the circumstances, God looks at the bigger story of redemption, right? And he does allow suffering to linger. But now God is saying, here, it's time for me to act. Get ready. I'm coming down and I am going to deliver you. If you're taking notes with us today, following along there on the sheets that say this week, we've already passed this. God sees your suffering. He hears the cries of his people. He knows the suffering of his people personally. And God responds to suffering with his presence every time. Some of you, maybe you're in a really hard moment right now, a hard season, you're going through something and you've been waiting on God to change the circumstances and you've missed this truth that God's saying, listen, I'm offering myself to you right now, and that's enough. Maybe it's something subtle. Maybe it's just lingering struggle with like depression or anxiety, or, you know, maybe it's just some kind of turmoil going on at work, and you're like, hey, it's not as big as slavery, but, you know, I just, we're going through something right now, and God says, listen, my, my presence is enough. Or maybe you're going through something huge right now, Right? So maybe you just got the diagnosis or the divorce slip, or right, something huge is going on right now in your life. And the question is, is God enough for you, even if He doesn't immediately change your circumstances? Now sometimes God does. I can't explain it. Why? Because I don't know. I was just sharing with our other services. We've got a, a gentleman in our church right now. He helps lead our fifth through eighth grade ministry. His name's Bobby Doctor baptized one of our students in the last service. God's just working through that ministry. But what you probably don't know is over the last four weeks, he's been under the cloud of this cancer diagnosis. And it was, hey, this this could be terminal. This could, you may only have this long to live. And so for three or four weeks, he's just in limbo, waiting on biopsies, waiting on scans, waiting on this. All the while, just trying to believe and trust that God is good. That even if it ends in, 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 in his body dying to this cancer. God is still good and praying and we're praying. And, and then last Friday he goes into the doctor and they did this big biopsy. And it's one of those stories. Doctor's like, listen, come here. I, I can't explain this. The doctor said to him, she said, Bobby, what you have in your body, I've never seen it not be cancer in all of my practice. Right, from a, from a secular perspective, This is clearly a miracle. God does that sometimes, right? He can do it every time, right? But at times he leaves the affliction for a season. Why? Because it leads to something better. Not something mediocre, not something second rate, something actually better. You see how that makes God good? Now, This is how God is responding to the nation of Israel. Not only is he giving his presence, but God is responding to their suffering with the promise to rescue them. And so now what what happens in chapter 3, 11, through the rest of the chapter, Moses does what most of us do when God speaks. We give God a million reasons why he should pick somebody else. A million reasons why we are disqualified. So look at what he says, verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he being God said, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So Moses's first response is what? Who am I, God? I got nothing to offer. If these people are counting on me, I'm gonna let them down. You notice how God doesn't like step in and like start boosting his self-esteem? Moses, you know, you got this. You're smart. People like you. You're gonna do a great job. I believe in you, right? God doesn't do that. He doesn't tell Moses, hey Moses, you're enough. You're gonna you're gonna be fine. What does God say? Hey, Moses, I'm gonna be with you. What is he saying? This is not contingent upon you. Soon, right? It's not, I'm not going to rescue the nation of Israel because finally you're born. I've been waiting all this time for somebody who could help me get these people out of slavery. No, God says what? Here, Moses, you're right. You're not enough. But I am. I am enough. So Moses will go through another list of excuses. He'll say, Well, God, well, who do I tell them sent me then? Right? I mean, this is a big deal you're asking of me. And then God does what? He reveals his character to Moses and then gives him his name. He says what? First, I am. What do you mean you are? No, that's who you tell him sent you. I am sent you, which grammatically you should just say, I be. It's just a description before God gives his proper name of his character, right? I have always been, I will always be. I've seen backwards and forwards and I knew this day before creation. You tell them I be sent you. And oh, by the way, here's my name, Yahweh, which if you put that into a phrase is I am the Lord. There's no one like me. There's no one above me. There is no one of more value, more worth, more power, more might, or more goodness. I am the Lord. And You tell Pharaoh, you tell my people, that's who sent you. And then of course he comes up with some more excuses. He says, well, hey God, they won't believe me. Well, that's fine. Let me see your staff. We're gonna do some miracles and that'll help get their attention so they know that somebody like me sent you. But God, I'm not a very good speaker. Okay, that's fine. I'll send Aaron with you. He'll speak, right? So now Moses goes, but before he goes, we can't miss this important part. So in chapter four, verse 21, before we read it, listen. The way you think this is gonna go down or the way you think it should go down is not the way this is about to go down, okay? So now what we would expect to happen is for Moses to go, take Aaron, take the staff, take all these signs, go to Pharaoh. Hey, God said, let his people go. And Pharaoh go, oh, I'm so sorry, I have made a mistake. Here you guys go. But, but look at verse 21 with me. Please look at this with me. Exodus 4, 21, and the Lord said to Moses... When you go, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. What? Yeah. I want you to go. Here's what you're gonna do. Aaron's going with you. Here's all your signs, but oh, by the way, it's not gonna work. This is a lousy plan, right? This is not the way we think that God's rescue should go, is it? How often does God's rescue in your life go the way that you think it should go? Almost never, right? But we have to remember God is looking at the big picture here. And he wants to make sure that his people and Pharaoh understand who it is who is rescuing here. This is not up to Pharaoh. It's not up to Moses. This is, I am the Lord. And so now in chapter six, so Moses goes with Aaron before Pharaoh. Hey, Pharaoh, um, God, I don't know if you know him or not. He's pretty cool. He said, let his people go. Here's some signs and some powerful things he gave. And so here's what ends up happening. Pharaoh bows up. And now it becomes Pharaoh against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And basically, Pharaoh calls the bluff of God and says, you know what? Let's see what God does when I turn up the heat on the suffering. So before it gets better, it actually gets worse. The oppression that was already there now becomes harder. And Pharaoh turns up the heat of the suffering and says, let's just see how big your God is if he's really going to rescue you. And so, and then in chapter 6, Moses goes back to God. God, it didn't work. Everybody's mad at me. Pharaoh's mad. He made it worse. Why did you even say this didn't work? Remember, God told him it wasn't going to work, right? Okay. So he comes back to God, and then in chapter 6, God responds. And this is the most powerful part of this section of God's story, I believe. Verse 1 of chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. You hear God's voice there? Now it's time for everybody to see what I'm going to do. You're right, it didn't work, Moses. Why? Because you're not a hero you're not a savior, you're not a rescuer, but I am. And now Pharaoh's about to see what I can do. And I love this because now rather than just passively letting God's people go, did you hear what God said? Hey, it's not gonna be like that. Pharaoh is gonna be so convinced of who I am, he's gonna send them out. He's gonna drive them out. He's not gonna give them the option to stay. You people leave. Because God says, that's what happens when I get involved. That's what it looks like when my mighty hand works. Now you're about to see what I will do. Um, if you, we're gonna read verses four through eight. And if you are uh, one of those people who likes to write in your Bible, like you underline important things, circle, like I want you to circle or underline all the I will statements from God. I want you to hear this. This is powerful. So we saw that what Moses did didn't work. And now God is going to speak. He says in verse four, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Can we keep that in mind? Before this nation was ever in slavery, God made a promise God is not obligated to move because the people cried out. He's obligated to move, why? Because it's his plan. And so he's reminding the people that he made a promise and a covenant. And look at what he says in verse six. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be what? My people. Nobody else can make you my people. I will make you my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you. For a possession. Why? Because I am the Lord. It's who I am. Now, what a powerful moment in God's redemptive story, isn't it? But it tells us a lot about our own stories, doesn't it? Have you been in a hard situation or a hard season where you cried out to God and you wondered, God, can you see what's happening here? I mean, can you hear my prayers? Do you know how bad things are? How, how, how painful things are? How much I want things to change? And so many times, God's first response is what? Yes, I see what you're going through. And for right now, I'm gonna give you my presence. And that's gonna be enough for right now. I and I alone know when to change the circumstances. It may be when you die. It may be between now and then. But that timeline is in my hands And for right now, my grace, my presence is enough. I want to ask you something about your God. And you might think, my God, aren't we all talking about the same God? I don't know. Let me ask you something about your God. Is your God worthy to be worshiped whether he does anything in your life or not? Even if he leaves you in affliction for a season, is he worthy to be worshiped? And do you believe by faith that whatever God allows in your life, whatever valleys he walks you through are actually leading you to a greater good? That's the God of the Bible. He's not the author of evil, but he takes evil and he redeems it and turns it into good. And only God can do that. Moses can't do that, right? I mean, Abraham, he's not the hero of the story. Isaac, Jacob, they're not the heroes of the story. Clearly, Moses is not the hero of the story, right? He tried and failed. And God says what? Listen, I and I alone am the hero of the story and I and I alone wanna be the hero of your story. I and I alone wanna be your savior. Not your spouse, not your children, not your job, not your career, not your accolades. I and I alone. You're taking notes. The last statement says, It's only by the mighty hand of God that his people find their rescue. We're about to sing a song that that makes this statement I will build my life upon something. I want to ask you, what is your life built upon right now? Is your life built upon the truths of God's word and who he actually is? Or are you building your own life, writing your own story? One of the most powerful things that can happen in your life is when you come to God and you say, you know what, I make a lousy hero. I make a lousy main character. I want you to be the main character of my story. Here's my life. God, take it. Build it however you see fit. I trust you in the valleys and on the mountaintops. I trust you when things are good and when they're hard. I trust you in rejoicing and I trust you in sorrow. I trust you when things are easy and I trust you when things look like I don't have any idea how to go on. I will build my life upon that. I wanna pray for us now as we continue in the service, invite our worship team up and our prayer partners to come forward. I don't know what you're going through in life or where you're at. If you're at that place where you've you've realized, you know what, it's time for me to take that first step of faith. Listen, Jesus has died on the cross for you. He resurrected from the grave to show you how powerful he is, right? And he's saying to you, listen, come and believe. Believe. Put your faith in me and me alone and you will be saved. You will be rescued. And if that's you, I'm gonna pray that you would make that, take that step of faith today. For others in the room, maybe you are truly in like a season of affliction right now and you don't understand it. You don't know why God is allowing it, why God has not responded yet, why he has not rescued you, why he hasn't changed it. And so for you today, what you need is you just need the nearness of God. You need God to come near. I'm gonna pray that God's presence would just overwhelm this room and and, and overwhelm you in a good way, that you would know his presence and his goodness in such a way that even if he doesn't change your circumstances, he will be worthy to be worshiped in your life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for reminding us of your power and your might and your goodness through Moses and through the story of Israelite. God, we look at stories like this and we, we sometimes wonder, God, how you could allow, God, such affliction, such a time of suffering. But God, we know that you are good We know it's not because you don't care. We know it's not because you don't have power. But God, we know that you allow these things because you are leading us to a greater good. God, our good and your glory. And Father, we know that the story of the Bible is not really about us, it's about you. And God, now in our own lives, we pray that you would come be the hero of the story. Father, you would be our savior and our rescuer. God, I pray for any person here who doesn't know you that way, that they would take that step of faith to the cross today to trust in Jesus and him alone. And God, for anyone going through a season of affliction right now, that more than anything, that they would just cry out for your presence, that they would want you more than they want their circumstances to change. So Father, now as we prepare to respond, we pray your spirit would move through this place and move through our hearts. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus.